Welcome to the Stony Plain Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community that is about discovering fullness of life for everyone by practicing the way of Jesus together. We've been in a series, I haven't been here for it, I've heard it's been going really well, uh, a series called Seeing Jesus in Unseen Places. And over the next number of weekends, I've decided after a number of characters happening in, in uh, July, whether it was Jonah or Joseph or the Exodus and Moses, for the next number of weekends, I'm going to be looking into the life of David with you. So four messages over the next little while about how Jesus starts appearing, how when we read the story of David, we're not supposed to just stop at David. We're supposed to see David as a catalyst to teach us more about Jesus. And that's what we're going to be doing in the weeks ahead. Uh, one difference is on uh, August 12 and 13 weekend. I hope you'll be able to make it out for that. For those online, I hope you'll be able to join as well. Uh, Pastor Malath Bethune from the Erbil Alliance Church in northern Iraq will be here preaching that weekend. It just so happened uh, he was in Toronto and uh, we've been talking about uh, his church and some of the things happening in northern Iraq and the challenges they're facing and what life is like here in Stony Plain. We thought what better way to collide some worlds together than to have Pastor Malath come and preach that weekend. So I hope you'll uh, make time for that on the August 13 weekend. But for us today, looking at David, not to emulate him, but to see Jesus revealed in his story and ours. So why David? Why did I decide, and as I prayed for our congregation in this church, just felt prompted towards the life of David, but you think about it for a moment. David's this fascinating character in scripture. He was a musician, an artist, a warrior, a poet, a statesman. He's the main contributor to the Psalms and his life weaves in and out of triumph and tragedy, much like our lives do. In many ways, David plays the central role in the Old Testament. I mean, look at the space that is devoted to him. Abraham gets 14 chapters devoted to him. Elijah has 10 chapters. David has 66 chapters of the scriptures devoted to his life. He's mentioned 600 times in the Old Testament and another 60 times in the New Testament. He's the last character named in Scripture in Revelation 22, where Jesus says, I am the offspring of David. And David was just this remarkable human being. In the text we're going to look at this weekend, though, it's not all of those things, his remarkableness, that drew God to the person of David. What's really remarkable about David was, his, was not his external accomplishments, the Bible says that what set David apart was his heart, his intimacy with God, the way he was trying to walk with some integrity in his life with God. And to be clear, I mean, we know this, right, friends? David was by no means perfect. I mean, not even close, right? The Bible is so clear about his faults and his failings. But here's the secret. You know our real reason? The real reason I want to study David for the rest of the summer together is not to glorify David and have us be more like David, but to see God glorified and have our hearts shaped through the teaching of the scripture as the spirit takes the story of David and says, now how am I going to make you more like Jesus? That's why we're starting. It's about how God will be glorified in your hearts and in mine over these next number of weeks together. And David's story is a catalyst. It's a springboard that God is using to make us more like Jesus. And I think that it is really a matter of heart for all of us. I think our hearts are going to change in the next few weeks as we walk his story together. And so 1 Samuel 16 is where we first get introduced to David in scripture. Israel had been freed from slavery in Egypt. They'd lived in the promised land under a series of judges like Joshua and Gideon and Deborah and Samson. And the last judge that Israel had was a man named Samuel. But the people 
really wanted a king to lead them into battle like all the other nations had. And so God had Samuel anoint a king. And that first king of Israel, after the time of the judges, was this man named Saul. And Saul was this incredibly impressive person. He stood, it says, head and shoulders over the people of Israel. He walked into the room with commanding presence. But Saul's story is a tragic one in that Saul became increasingly corrupt and violent and evil. And Samuel brings the word of the Lord to Saul and says to him, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Essentially saying, and Saul, that's not you, by the way. You're pursuing other things. And the Lord has already appointed him to be leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. You've not walked in the ways of God. Now in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel is very, very old. And his time on earth is close to being complete. And God speaks to him one more time in 1 Samuel 16 and says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel asked, how can I do that? If if Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to Samuel. What's wrong? They asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to sacrifice too. And when they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. The Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Should have been an amen go in your heart right there. Verse 8, then Jesus, then, not Jesus, I'm sorry, then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shimea, but Samuel said, Neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all of seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any one of these. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons that you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse replied. But he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. And he was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. That is, pour oil on him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. So here's what happens. God comes to Samuel and says, Samuel, go and anoint a new king. And Samuel, being a very smart person, says, God, uh, we've already got a king. And it's really bad for your health to appoint a new king when there's already a king that's sitting on the throne. And God said, trust me. So Samuel goes to this little obscure village called Bethlehem. You'll notice in the text, it says in verse 4, that the elders of the town, they tremble when Samuel shows up. Because Samuel, if you read his story, isn't really known for his small talk. He's not about chatting about the weather or what's for dinner. And so when Samuel shows up, the question is, 
who sinned, who's getting punished. It's like, wait till your father gets home. Samuel shows up, it's not usually good news. So somebody must be in serious trouble and they tremble and Samuel said, it's okay. I'm not here for that this time. Uh, God's going to give a great honor to this town. And the leader of his people is going to come from this little nowhere place that hardly anyone has ever heard of before called Bethlehem. Can anything good come out of Bethlehem? Samuel invites the elders and Jesse's family to this event. And as you might imagine, his arrival would create this, this stir in this obscure little village. And Jesse is so proud he can hardly stand it. You just like picture the scene with me for a moment. Jesse introduces his first son, the heir to his fortune and property. He's always known this kid was destined for greatness. Right from the start, class president, quarterback of the football team, outstanding young CEO. He comes with this commanding presence, walks into a room, and it just dominates, right? And Jesse said, son Eliab, he's your man. It's definitely the chosen one, and everyone nods. Everyone agrees, except God. <clears throat> and God says, ah, he's not the one. So Samuel passes the word on, and Jesse has son number two, Abinadab. He's not the man. And son number three, Shema, he comes and he goes through all seven sons. They don't all get named, but they all one by one are placed before Samuel. Nobody is the person that God has in mind. And Samuel's probably wondering by this time, God, why in the world did you call me to all places like Bethlehem into the middle of nowhere to reject seven people? So he says to Jesse, are these the only sons you have and those from big families? You'll get it. Sometimes you have to ask that question, right? Are these the only sons you have? Seems like a weird question, doesn't it? Don't you think Jesse would be aware of how many kids he has? Are these the only sons you have? And Jesse almost has this afterthought, right? Well, they're still the youngest. We still don't get a name yet. Notice that? We don't get a name. It's just, what's his name? Out with the sheep. Yeah, he's there. Still the youngest. And understand, as you read that term, the youngest, in the text, it didn't only mean the last born. It also meant lowest in rank. And there is an incredible significance in that date of birth order. And there's some of that in our day. There is. Uh, how many of you were not the firstborn in your family? I want to show of hands here. How many of you were not the firstborn in your family? How many of you ever noticed, there's quite a few of us not the firstborn, that the firstborn had all the unfair advantages like the photo album. You ever see those? We still have those around. You ever notice that? Oldest has every day of their life recorded in picture and video, but by the time the youngest comes around, there's like one picture at birth and a blurry graduation photo. And that's kind of like something happened in there. They lived, I guess. You may not know this. I grew up as the youngest in my family. So I know how this goes, right? Well, Jesse says they're still the youngest, but he's out with the sheep. And Samuel says, well, go send for him. And we're going to wait. Imagine what that was like. That had to take considerable time to track this kid down out with the sheep. And so Samuel says, we're not sitting down to eat until he comes. And so there they are just standing there. Seven sons, all like the first runner-up in a horrible pageant. Just kind of, well, they finally get David. And he stands in front of Samuel. And God looks at David and says, that's the one. That's the one I've chosen to be the next king. That's him. And now there's this theme going on. And it kind of runs through the whole Old Testament. And it has to do with the reversal of birth order. Again, in those days, birth order was a massive deal. But you think about the order that's followed throughout the Old Testament of the people of God. Ishmael's born first, but God chooses Isaac. Esau comes first, but God has the line go through Jacob. 
Ten other brothers are born first, but God says, Joseph, seven other boys born first, but David, the youngest, becomes king. Now, what is God saying in all that? Is God saying that firstborn kids are all spoiled and he likes younger kids better? Yes, that's exactly what it's saying. That's the whole meaning of the text. Not really. In those days, everything went to the firstborn. All rights, all property, all privileges. And that's the way the power structures were were set up. And God is saying now, in every time he chooses someone out of birth order, God is saying that he's breaking into the ordinary cultural practices of human life and he's about to do a brand new thing. If you're reading through the Old Testament and you see a reversal of birth order and something come to the younger, it's an indicator that God is doing a brand new thing. And now old limitations and old boundaries about who can serve and who who can't, who counts and who doesn't count, they don't apply anymore. God's saying something about the way it is in his kingdom. God is doing something new and he's not bound to any human system or power structure. God is at work and his kingdom often shakes up the structures that we have in place to make us feel okay. And God summarizes this in verse 7 when he says to Samuel, The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, we, we need to understand this rightly and don't distort it. So let me, let me say what it doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that gifts or talents or strengths don't matter to God. I've heard some folks talk as if things like strengths and gifts are a bad thing and God prefers those with no talent whatsoever. That's not what's happening here. What 1 Samuel 16, 7 points out is not that gifts, talents, or strengths are bad things or things that God can't use. What it's pointing out is that the human race inevitably tends to obsess over external appearance. We tend to think that charm and attractiveness and ability that leads to outward accomplishment is all that matters in the world. So if I have those things in obvious and visible ways, then I'm blessed. And if I don't have those things in obvious, visible ways, then I'm insignificant and I don't matter. And we forget about the heart because we're obsessing over the externals. What God says over and over and over again through the testimony of Scripture, what God is saying to some of you right now here this morning, it is that in his kingdom, everyone has value. Every life matters. In God's kingdom, everybody has something to offer. In God's kingdom, everybody's contribution matters the lastborn as well as the firstborn. Race and skin color, culture, language, intelligence, gender, all of the things the world uses to determine effectiveness is not what God prioritizes. While the whole world is looking at externals to kind of get the pecking order about who matters, God tends to go right to the bottom or right to the margins and say, I'm doing something brand new and I'm upsetting all the human structures that push people away or keep them out. And I'm drawing the outsiders right to the center to show that God is not bound to any human power structure. And God said to Samuel, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and that's what he found in David. And so the question is, what is it about David's heart, imperfect as it was, sinful as it was, that makes it a heart that's pursuing? It's like a trajectory statement. What was it about the trajectory of David's life in his heart that was like after God's own? And so in the few minutes remaining, as a setup to the next few weeks, just to get to know David a little bit and some of the qualities of heart that we're going to be looking at and how we can be living into those in the power of the Spirit. 
I want to talk about a few things I believe that made David great-hearted in God's sight. And I hope that these are ways that God is going to build my heart and your heart over these few weeks. I hope that we're just going to become people after God's own heart, imperfect as we may be, but that the trajectory of our lives would have the qualities of people who are growing in step with Jesus. Let's look at a few things about David's heart. I'll just do a little heart check as we walk through them and ask yourself, how much is this true of me? Number one is this. I believe you'll see as we get to know David that David's heart was characterized by a sense of wild abandon. His heart was characterized by an adventuresomeness with God, a wild abandon. This is real common in a line from the Psalms that David wrote, Psalm 9. David says, I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart, with the fullness of my being. It occurs again in Psalm 86 and Psalm 111. David had an unguarded passion and heart and never held back. He wasn't calculating and cautious with his heart. He was generous and free. The Bible talks of one day, the Ark of the Covenant was being brought to Jerusalem and that moment kind of symbolized or expressed the fact that God was reigning with his people and his presence was with them. And David the king, story goes, was dancing and leaping before the Lord with all of his might. I just wonder, when was the last time that we were so full of gratitude to God that you just had to jump up and down you just had to express with some measure of wild abandon, whatever wild abandon may look like for you, a heart that is on fire for the goodness of God. It may not look exactly like David's response. You do not want to see me dancing and leaping, I assure you. But when's the last time you were just overwhelmed and out of words as you expressed your heart about the goodness of God, like left speechless in his presence? I was talking to someone yesterday not part of this church, whatever, just ended up at a, at a function with somebody. <clears throat> and they were just talking about their church experience and how church for their whole lives, so dull, so boring, so whatever else. And I had this in my heart. And so I asked the person, it's like, when's the last time your heart was captured by wild abandon for God? And this guy's response is like, that can happen. You can do that. God forgive us if we've ever made the gathering of the church, this thing of religious obligation. We've lost our sense of adventure and wild abandon. We need to recapture it. Well, David was so passionate about God that he had this wildly abandoned heart. He was just jumping up and down, giving his all to the God he adored so deeply. Friends, I want to have a heart like that. I don't want to go to my grave with a heart that's cold and calculating and protected and safe and hard. I don't, and I don't think you do either. I want to have a heart like that and be part of a community of hearts like that. A community of passionate hearts so devoted to God that we get swept up in his love and his power and his goodness together. And we try wild things and experiment all for his glory and for the blessing of people. My prayer is that as we grow as a church, some of us will worship God with more passion than ever before in your life. You're free to do that here. Some of you may be moved to new expressions of gratitude or to tears of joy or depths of conviction like never before. My prayer is that we just develop hearts that are wildly abandoned to God. Because that's what Jesus shows us, isn't it? Someone who is living in the fullness of the Spirit and responsive to God in every moment, responsive to the Father. We want to be like that. <clears throat> the second thing about David's heart, David's heart was characterized by deep reflection. David's heart wasn't just characterized by this wild abandon, but by deep reflection. This is a typical comment from David. Also one of the Psalms attributed to him in Psalm 139. At the end of it, when David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Like search me out, investigate what's going on inside of me. This is a rare combination when you think of those first two traits, isn't it? Passionate action on the one hand and deep reflection on the other. But that was David. Wild abandonment. Deeply reflective. And I'll tell you what I think. I think David's heart was formed. In all those years he was alone with God, something happened there. You know, David spent a lot of his life waiting. When he was a kid, he was just tending sheep. And there's an amazing day like we read about when Samuel comes and anoints him as king over Israel. And think about this. Imagine the next day. Because, you know, David doesn't just march into, into Jerusalem after the anointing and sit on the throne. Saul is still king. Samuel is left. He's back to Ramah. What does David do the next day after being anointed king? Back to the sheep. Imagine this happening to you. The greatest thing in the world. You've been anointed a leader and there's no one to tell about it except a group of sheep. Hey, sheep, I'm the king. They don't care. You're getting no, no feedback whatsoever. All those years, he was leading a flock of sheep through the wilderness. They were not wasted years. He was learning to be alone with, with God. He was growing in depth and heart and character. Then there were all those years he hid from Saul. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks, about living in caves and how God meets us in the caves of our lives. David ran from one spot to another. Those were not wasted years. He was growing deep with God in solitude and quiet. God was shaping his heart to be great, to be deep. And God wants to do that for us. We'll give him a chance. You ever find yourself get a little tired of noise? You ever get tired of just the noise factor in the world that we live in? And the noise constant noise without a space for reflection actually makes our lives feel shallow and hollow. You know, I think the primary reason for the lack of depth often in our lives is the sheer volume of noise and information that we are getting bombarded with. Henry Nouwen writes this and says, he says this, solitude molds self-righteous people into gentle, forgiving people who are so deeply convinced of their own great sinfulness and so fully aware of God's even greater mercy that their life itself becomes a ministry. I want to have a heart like that. I want to have a heart that goes deep with God in quiet places. And some of us are terrified of quiet places. I wonder if over the next few weeks, one of the practices is to do what Jesus did and get up to the mountaintop sometime. Get away into nature, get away into the wilderness and have some quiet time and just see what your loving father wants to say to you. David had a heart that was characterized by wild abandon. I want a heart like that. He had a heart that was characterized by deep reflection. I want a heart. But I think the other thing that cries out about David's heart is maybe what I want most of all. Is David's heart was characterized by irrational love. I think of the people in David's life, some of whom we're going to learn about together in the the weeks ahead. Take Saul, right? Once a promising young king himself, and then just increasingly corrupt tormented by pathological jealousy of David. Saul was constantly deceiving David and several times tries to kill him. And what's most amazing is how through it all, David loved Saul. He just kept loving the man. And there are others like Jonathan or Mephibosheth or Absalom. And whether a friend, family member, or an enemy, when David loved you, you stayed loved because there was grace and love in his heart that was there from God. And friends, I want to love like that. I don't want to be calculating in love. I want to be free. You know, most notably, I think, is that what we see in David's life life is just like that little window 
that we've talked about into the heart of God and into the life of Jesus himself. As David grew in his love and devotion for God, it was God's heart that started to be revealed in David's life, even with all his mess-ups and failings and sin. You see, when I look at Jesus, when David's just this catalyst to then look to Jesus as the perfect one, Jesus was not tameable or cold or small. I love that as Jesus was going about the Galilean wilderness and teaching as he was walking through Samaria on the way to Jerusalem, that the one thing the religious elite could say about him is that he was either demon-possessed or drunk. You think about that. As Jesus was living in the way he was living and talking and telling stories and meeting with the wrong people and having meals with the wrong people, the religious elite who wanted to keep the power structures look at Jesus and say, he's got to be demon-possessed or he's drunk. And I just think Jesus was living with a wild abandon. I want to live like that. This God revealed in Christ, he creates with wild abandon and creativity. And yet Jesus was never anxious or worried or afraid. He's a God of stillness and peace and steadfastness. And then what we see in Jesus is this one who will be with the crowds, unfolding this enormous compassion and healing, but then get away and hear from the Father and be directed and encouraged by the Spirit. And what we see through David's life and others in scriptures right up to the cross, we, this is revealed again and again and again, that the quality of Christ's heart is that Jesus is a God of irrational love and he just loves relentlessly. You know, if there's one thing I hear as a pastor these days, probably more than anything else, is people assessing their lives and finding it unimaginable that God could love them anymore because they did this or because they still have this hang-up, or because their faith hasn't grown in this way. And we are approaching life so often as followers of Jesus that God's love is, being, is coming to us in degrees based on our performance or our behavior or whatever else like that. What is revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ, we see in David with this irrational love that doesn't make sense, we see exemplified and perfected in the cross when Jesus says through the cross that while you were still sinners, I died for you. That while you were all messed up, while you had all those issues and problems, while you were so stuck in sin, that's when I died for you. That's when my irrational love came and took you out of what you were in to redeem you and save you and make you brand new. Church, if we ever got a hold of the fact that God is not loving us in degrees, but with irrational, relentless love coming after us and pursuing us into his heart and into his way, it would absolutely transform us and the communities around us because we would be absolutely fearless in our lives knowing that we're loved like that. We see it in little hints in David, like appetizers to the meal. And then we look to the cross and we see it fully exemplified as God stretches out his arms in the person of Christ and says this much, I have come this far to show you that I love you this much. So if Jesus will go that far right to the cross, what makes you think he won't keep coming for you now? Thank you for tuning into our podcast today. To discover more about Stony Plain Alliance Church and its ministries, visit our website at spaconline.com. Grace and peace.